Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. It's 1988, and as you sit in class waiting for the day to end, your mind can't help but focus on what's going to happen on your favorite shows that night. What will the characters get up to? How funny will everything be? You race home and eagerly count down the hours until prime time begins. It's Thursday, and that means the biggest night on television. These nights give you the chance to gather around the TV with your family and watch the characters and families that feel like old friends. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, I take you back to the era when the sitcom dominated network TV, and it was a decade that gave us some of the greatest shows in TV history. This is the 10 best sitcoms of the 80s. What are the origins of the sitcom, and how did we get to the point in the 80s we're about to cover? The situational comedy or sitcom goes as far back as television itself, and even predates it. Like a lot of early television, the shows that first aired were adaptations of successful radio programs. Take, for example, soap operas. These started out as radio dramas, or operas, sponsored by soap companies. Leading soap with two rinses. Next wash day, discover this amazing new Oxidol in the same familiar package. The Wonder Suds that washes clothes deep clean with just one rinse. During episodes, they would often make reference to the very products sponsoring the show. Along with this were sketch comedy shows that would later be adopted for television. Doing a real-life performance of these radio shows often on live TV were challenging. With radio, the show is created quite simply with some microphones and sound effects. Now on TV, they needed new sets and characters every week. Eventually, it seemed more cost-efficient to just use the same sets and characters week after week and just come up with new situations for the familiar characters in their same environment. This simple formula put in place back then hasn't really changed much to this day. One of the biggest shows that fully established the sitcom as a viable form of television entertainment was the iconic I Love Lucy. In the early 1950s, I Love Lucy became must-see TV decades before that was even a phrase. It was the highest rated show in the country and again set the standard and formula followed by sitcoms going forward. We also got other iconic sitcoms like The Honeymooners. I don't know anybody does a mambo. I don't do it. Norton doesn't do it. My grandmother never did it. <laughs> and I Love Lucy also created another groundbreaking feature used by sitcoms to this day. Three cameras. Before this, shows used a single camera and a single scene would need to be shot several times to capture everything. 
With three cameras, they could capture everything at once, then edit it all together later. And with a live studio audience, it was easier to keep the genuine laughter throughout the entire take. With a show like I Love Lucy, which contained a lot of physical comedy, three cameras avoided interruptions and captured physical comedy better as the actors were not burdened down by multiple takes. I Love Lucy was also shot on film and not broadcast live. This meant they could use it for something that became a pivotal part of TV, the rerun. Thanks to I Love Lucy and The Honeymooners, the sitcom quickly became a cornerstone of television programming. I can't understate the importance of this show because if there had never been an I Love Lucy, we might not have got the beloved sitcoms of the 80s, or the sitcom as we know it. Over the next few decades, some of the big sitcoms included The Beverly Hillbillies, I Dream of Jeannie, Gilligan's Island, Leave it to Beaver, and Bewitched, just to name a few. In the 1970s, sitcoms took on a bit of a grittier approach, which was more reflective of the time period. Shows like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Laverne and Shirley, MASH, and Taxi felt a bit edgier and maybe more cynical than the squeaky clean sitcoms of years prior. Speaking of MASH, I have a previous episode all about the finale of this series, which is one of the most watched TV shows in history. As we enter the 1980s, there was a return to more heartwarming, feel-good sitcoms. The dread of the 70s was being pushed to the side for the hope and optimism of the 1980s. Did 1980s sitcoms reflect this change, or were they a return to the very early sitcoms of the 50s and 60s, when everything seemed warm and fuzzy, which the creators of 1980s sitcoms grew up watching? But with all this in mind, let's look back at 10 of the very best sitcoms from the 80s. A list like this obviously comes from my own perspective, but I've taken several factors into account while compiling it, including the characters, premise, rating success, influence, pop culture impact of the time, and what people around me during the 80s were saying about them. As long as we got each other, we got the world spinning right in our hands. Baby, rain or shine, all the time, we got each other sharing the laughter and love. Those are the words that greet us to the opening of Growing Pains. Growing Pains is a story of the Seaver family. Father Jason is a psychologist, wife Maggie is a journalist, and they have four kids, Mike, Ben, Carol, and Chrissy. Jason is played by the late, great Canadian Alan Thicke. Joanna Kearns plays Maggie. Kurt Cameron plays Mike. Jeremy Miller plays Ben. Tracy Gold plays Carol. And Ashley Johnson plays Chrissy. Growing Pains is also the show that introduced us to a young Leonardo DiCaprio. Growing Pains is as family sitcom as family sitcoms get. It was light and kind of cheesy, but that was a big part of its appeal. Released in September 1985, Growing Pains is one of those shows that captures the essence of the early sitcoms. Every decade always needs a simple family sitcom, and Growing Pains was a non-threatening, easy watch. It taught simple lessons about responsibility and making good choices. Driven by the enormous popularity of star Kirk Cameron, Growing Pains was a solid rating success. In its third season, it cracked the top five most watched shows and hit a rating of nearly 23.0. Growing Pains ran for seven seasons, finishing up in April 1992. It even led to a spinoff called Just the Ten of Us. Then the Growing Pains movie in 2000, and Growing Pains, Return of the Seavers in 2004. 
Next is the story of a former pro baseball player who takes a job as a housekeeper for a high-powered businesswoman. Call it a 1980s sitcom version of Mary Poppins, but in this case, Mary is named Tony and can stretch out a base hit into a double. Who's the Boss debuted in September 1984, starring Tony Danza as Tony Maselli, Judith Light as Angela Bauer, Danny Pintaro as Jonathan, Alyssa Milano as Samantha, and Catherine Hellman as Mona. Who's the Boss plays into the classic will-they-or-won't-they dynamic between Tony and Angela. Tension between the two leads, a classic sitcom trope, always keeps viewers invested. And with Alyssa Milano being a huge star in the 80s, you had the perfect formula for a successful sitcom. The first two seasons started decently ratings-wise, but for the next four straight seasons, Who's the Boss was a top 10 most-watched show. In the 1987-88 season, it hit number 6 with a 21.2 rating. An impressive feat during an era with such powerhouse TV shows and sitcoms. Who's the Boss ran for eight seasons, finishing in April of 1992. Like Seinfeld, Who's the Boss finished with a scene that mirrored how the pilot episode began to bookend the entire series, with Tony showing up on the doorstep of Angela to be greeted by her wearing the same robe and talon hair as when they first met. Then Tony asks if she's looking for a housekeeper. The amazing thing that people don't often associate with Who's the Boss is what a critical hit it really was. Over the course of the series, the show was nominated for 40 different awards, including 10 Emmys. Catherine Hellman even won the Emmy for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Mona. Who's the Boss used a unique premise, great casting, and featured some real chemistry between all the performers. Though its creators originally had a bit of an older audience in mind, the show about an alien life form crash landing on Earth quickly became a hit with kids and a powerhouse family sitcom. ALF debuted in the fall of 1987 and was an immediate hit, especially in my household. Ha! Yeah! I kill me! ALF is the story of Gordon Shumway, an alien from the planet of Melmac that crashes into the garage of the Tanner family. Over the next four seasons, we are treated to a classic fish-out-of-water, stranger-in-a-strange-land premise as Alf navigates his new life while trying to repress his bizarre customs, such as eating cats. Alf was a big risk by NBC, but came around at the exact perfect time. The network was struggling to find a hit and was more willing to take risks, and a primetime show with a puppet as the lead was a huge risk. But because of the incredible creativity and performance by ALF's creator, Paul Fusco, it was easy to forget we were watching a puppet. Fusco created such a lifelike and engaging character that thousands of kids even thought he was real. At its peak, NBC was receiving 40,000 pieces of mail a week from kids writing into ALF himself. And ALF was true performance art. Alf was never to be referred to as a puppet or character, but as an actual being. Fusco would often stay in characters Alf between scenes and during outtakes. Even the show's credits listed assistants to Alf like he was a star performer. And since Alf was a huge hit with kids, this led to a tidal wave of merchandise products. This made the show incredibly profitable. Alf was never a number one show, but cracked the top 10 during a time when some of the biggest sitcoms in history, with the biggest named stars, dominated the ratings. 
I have a previous episode all about the history of Valve, but this remains one of my all-time favorite shows with its seamless blend of humor, heartwarming stories, and one of the defining characters of the entire 1980s. One of the best spin-offs ever, A Different World, debuted in September of 1987 on NBC. A spin-off from The Cosby Show, A Different World follows Denise Huxtable attending a fictional historically black college. It stars Lisa Bonet as Denise, Jasmine Guy as Whitney, Marissa Tomei as Maggie, Don Lewis as Jalisa, and Kadeem Hardinson as Dwayne. We also get to meet Sinbad as Coach Walter Oaks. This was more than just a Cosby Show spinoff, as A Different World was a groundbreaking sitcom that dealt with issues regarding racism, black history, and the AIDS epidemic. A Different World was a huge hit for NBC, and it featured many guest stars, including Halle Berry, James Avery, a.k.a. Uncle Phil, and Alfonso Ribeiro, a.k.a. Carlton, from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. There was also Jesse Jackson, Gladys Knight, Chris Cross, Billy D. Williams, and even Tupac. In its first season, A Different World was the second most-watched show on TV. In season two, it was still number three, and still in the top five by the end of the decade. At its peak, viewer-wise in the 80s, more than 36 million people tuned in. A Different World concluded on July 9, 1993, marking the end of not only a groundbreaking sitcom, but a true network powerhouse. Next, what do you get when you take a character from the fictional country of Mipos who moves to the big city of Chicago to live with his cousin? You get one of the most beloved and quite important sitcoms of the 80s, Perfect Strangers. Perfect Strangers stars Bronson Pinchot as Balky Bartokamus and Mark Lynn Baker as cousin Larry Appleton. And the premise I just explained really is the entire essence of the show. This is a classic fish-out-of-water story to see how a character acclimates to a strange new land. It's basically like a family-friendly Borat. Perfect Strangers was quite a big hit and a critical show for ABC. Perfect Strangers debuted on March 25th, 1986, as we watch Larry and Balky try to coexist, yet another classic sitcom trope. According to a 2016 Mental Floss article, the origins of the show come from the 1984 Summer Olympics. The show's producers were watching the cultural shock being experienced by the international athletes and thought this could make for a great series. Perfect Strangers was never a massive ratings hit, but regularly finished in the top 40 and won its time slot but it would become a key part of a beloved weekly television ritual. Perfect Strangers started out on Tuesday nights before being moved to Wednesdays for the next two seasons. In March of 1988, it moved to Friday night, where it became the cornerstone of the beloved TGIF Friday night lineup. Perfect Strangers also led to another cornerstone of TGIF. One of the side characters on the show was named Harriet Winslow. She has a police officer husband named Carl, and this, of course, would spin off into the gigantic hit and new backbone of TGIF, Family Matters. 
Perfect Strangers created the perfect 1980s sitcom formula that many other shows would follow. This includes a distinctive theme song written by Jesse Frederick and Bennett Salve and performed by David Pomerantz. Several other shows would use this same team to create similar style theme songs that were light, airy, and upbeat, including Family Matters, Full House, and Step by Step. Perfect Strangers was a huge hit in my household and another one of those shows we never missed. The characters were great. It had a lot of physical humor and the show didn't take itself too seriously. It was heartwarming, accessible to a wide audience, and seemed like a throwback to sitcoms of the past. The great Lucille Ball was reportedly a fan of Perfect Strangers and you can't get much higher praise than that. Perfect Strangers ran for eight seasons, finishing up on August 6th, 1993. And Perfect Strangers is an important and interesting 80s sitcom because if it never existed, we probably wouldn't have got TGIF and many of the beloved shows that became a part of it. If you want some more detail about the history of TGIF, I have a previous episode all about this beloved Friday night time block. Most of the classic 80s sitcoms were contained in one location, usually that being a house. But within that house, the show could move around through the various rooms or the backyard to give the characters a change in environment and somewhere new to interact. We might also pop in on them at their workplace. But then there was one show, pretty much limited to a single room. Probably not the one you're thinking of. We'll get to that in a bit. But the one I'm referring to is presided over by the Honorable Judge Harold T. Stone. Night Court is simply the story of an entertaining judge presiding over a court dealing with petty crimes. That's really all there is to it, but the ensemble cast and the parade of bizarre characters and cases is what makes Night Court such a classic sitcom. And it's that single location that makes Night Court such a unique show. The strength of the cast to be able to use one set pretty much but create so many great episodes is a testament to their talent. Night Court was like watching a stage play where the physical location really isn't relevant, it's the premise and the characters. And this was all brought to life by some incredible performers including Harry Anderson as Judge Harry T. Stone, John Larroquette as Dan Fielding, Richard Mall as Bull, Marky Post as Christine Sullivan, Charles Robinson as Mac, and Marsha Warfield as Roz. Night Court debuted on January 4th, 1984 and ran all the way until May 1992. Night Court is an important show for NBC as it was one of those pivotal shows to help get the network back on track. It wasn't a family sitcom, but a situational comedy in every sense of the word, released during a time when there wasn't a guarantee that sitcoms could be a powerful genre. Night Court also aired alongside some other heavyweight shows that we'll cover in a minute on what would become the most powerful night in television, Thursdays. I loved Night Court. It leaned more toward the adult side of comedy but was still accessible thanks to the beloved characters. Night Court wasn't the highest rated show on TV but during its prime it hit the top 10 and achieved a 23.2 rating and most notably Night Court was a critical hit. It was nominated for dozens of awards, including a dozen Primetime Emmys and Creative Arts Emmy Awards. John LaRoquette also won a record, at the time, four straight Emmys for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. Coming up next, a beloved ensemble sitcom that turned a previous sitcom wasteland, Saturday Nights, 
into can't miss TV. Everything 80s will return after these messages. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take a unique premise, top-notch writing, possibly perfect casting into one of the best ensembles ever, you get the story of Dorothy Rose, Sophia, and Blanche, better known as the Golden Girls. Debuting on September 14, 1985 on NBC, the Golden Girls is the story of four older women all living together in a home in Miami. That's it. That's all the premise needed as an incredible cast was assembled to bring the characters to life. Dorothy is played by B. Arthur, Blanche by Rue McClanahan, Sophia by Estelle Getty, and Rose by the great Betty White. Golden Girls was yet another important show for NBC. It was also unique in that it aired on Saturday night, not exactly a common night for a sitcom. But right out of the gate, Golden Girls was a huge hit. It finished in the top 10 every year for the rest of the 80s and would easily average at least 30 million views per episode. Golden Girls was also unique in that it dealt with a lot of social issues that you didn't always see addressed on other shows at the time, especially in a sitcom. The series dealt with topics such as same-sex marriage, HIV-AIDS, how our elders are cared for, and even environmentalism. Golden Girls ran until May 9, 1992, and along the way became a staple at the Emmy Awards. Over the seven seasons, Golden Girls racked up an incredible 68 Emmy nominations, winning 11, including the award for Outstanding Comedy Series, twice. Also, each of the performers won at least one Emmy. This show was a powerhouse in every sense of the word. One of the great things about Golden Girls is how everyone could identify and see themselves in one of the characters. They all just felt so relatable. The chemistry between the four performers is on an all-time great level, and it's a sitcom that feels like it could exist in any decade. It's obviously become very difficult to discuss The Cosby Show today, but this is a look back on the massive cultural impact the show had in the 80s, and the work of all the creators, writers, actors, and crew that helped create a show with some of the largest and most consistent ratings in the history of television. It's the show that relaunched a sitcom and showed how profitable they could be. Debuting back in 1984, The Cosby Show is the story of the Huxtable family. Father Cliff, wife Claire, and kids Theo, Sandra, Denise, Vanessa, and Rudy. The Huxtables live in Brooklyn, New York, and we watch their daily life and struggles. 
The thing that was unique and drew so many people in is that not a lot happened on an average episode. It really was like a show about nothing as we watched the daily life of a family. But that's what made it so relatable. It felt like watching your own life. The Cosby Show was pretty groundbreaking in its portrayal of a successful upper-middle-class African-American family on TV. And it helped pave the way for other shows like A Different World, Family Matters, In Living Color, and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The story of TV sitcoms in the 80s really is the story of The Cosby Show as it dominated the ratings. Except for its very first year, when it still hit number three right out of the gate, The Cosby Show was the number one show in the U.S. for the rest of the decade. It also topped the ratings here in Canada, along with Australia and New Zealand. It was also a top-rated show in Denmark, the Netherlands, and even number one in South Africa. For the entire second half of the 1980s, no other show finished ahead of it. Not 60 Minutes, not any sitcoms, not Monday Night Football, nothing. Even Seinfeld and Friends at their peaks didn't hit the numbers The Cosby Show did. The TV landscape is obviously much different today, but still, if you combine the series finale ratings for The Office, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory, it's still nearly 5 million fewer viewers than watched an average episode of The Cosby Show in 1986. And that's just the average. During the week of January 1986, just two years into its run, one specific episode had a rating of 38.5. As reported by the Associated Press, this was, quote, the best performance for any regular series episode since the famous Dallas Who Shot JR episode from 1980. And it's important to point out what a rating number meant back then, using the American viewing audience in 1986 as an example. The average of 35.9 for The Cosby Show back in 86 measures the percentage of the nation's then 86 million homes that had a TV. So that 35.9 rating actually equals an average of around 42 million viewers. In the 1986-87 season, it hit heights of 63 million viewers. According to the book Black Television Travels, African American Media Around the Globe by Timothy Havens, the Cosby Show generated over a billion dollars in domestic syndicated sales and close to a billion in ad revenue for NBC. During the 80s, it, quote, attracted more viewers and made more money than any series in television history, unquote. By the end of the 80s, it still averaged 40 million viewers. That's more than double than watched this year's Academy Awards. The Cosby Show, which ran until April 1992, solidified Thursday nights on NBC as a night you could not miss. And Thursday continued to be the night in television when future gigantic hits like Seinfeld and Friends moved into the time slot. Next, you know a show is an all-time classic when you can identify it by the first few notes. Where do we even begin with Cheers? Not only is it one of the defining sitcoms of the 80s, but in the history of television. It's many people's all-time favorite show and gave us one of the biggest TV events ever with the finale. Cheers is the story of Sam Malone, played by Ted Danson, a former pitcher for the Boston Red Sox who runs a bar. One of the servers is Diane Chambers, played by Shelley Long. We'll get to that dynamic in a minute. The rest of the show is basically just hanging out in a bar and includes Nicholas Calasanto as coach, 
George Went as Norm, Rhea Perlman as Carla, John Ratzenberger as Cliff, Woody Harrelson as Woody, Kelsey Grammer as Frasier, and B.B. Newworth as Lilith. The last two would star in one of the best spinoff shows ever, Frasier. In later seasons, when Shelley Long left, Kirstie Alley came on as Rebecca. Cheers is the epitome of a show where you feel like you know the characters personally and you're just hanging out with them. After all, everybody there knows your name. Like Night Court, it can be a challenge to create something in a static environment, but this is a testament to the writing, actors, and performances. And then there is the huge angle that drew in so many viewers and kept them engaged. With all due respect to Ross and Rachel and Jim and Pam, the will-they-or-won't-they on-again-off-again dynamic between Sam and Diane is one of the greatest in sitcom history. Partially influenced by the on-screen dynamic of Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, the love-hate relationship between Sam Malone and Diane Chambers was required TV viewing. Cheers took a while to find an audience, but back in the 80s, shows were given a little more time to get established. In its first season, it ranked terribly, finishing 74th. The next season, it was a little better, hitting number 34. In season 3, it reaches the top 15. By season 4, it was in the top 5, and would remain there, and in the top 3, for the rest of the decade. By the end of the 80s and into the early 90s, upwards of 34 million people tuned in. The series finale of Cheers was one of the biggest TV events of all time. Cheers comes in at number two for the most watched finale ever behind the MASH finale. Over 80 million people tuned in to watch the beloved 1980 series wrap up in May 1993. And I remember that night like it was yesterday. With possibly the greatest theme song of all time, Cheers was an era-defining comedy with some of the best performers on TV. As big a ratings juggernaut as The Cosby Show was, our final entry is a beloved family sitcom that wasn't too far off it. And it's one that had a very clever premise. And it's one that perfectly encapsulated the 1980s. What happens to two liberal former hippies with a 1960s radical mindset that find themselves with a conservative, money-hungry son during an era of Reaganomics? Just like Cheers, Family Ties debuted all the way back in 1982 on NBC, a year that would end up being one of the most important years in the history of the network, as it created two of the biggest hits of the decade. And Family Ties came out during a time when there weren't many nuclear family sitcoms out there. But because of the success of Family Ties, there soon would be. NBC was also struggling in the ratings, and the show was developed by Gary David Goldberg, who loosely based it on his life growing up in Ohio. Family Ties is based around the son of the Keaton family, Alex, played by Michael J. Fox, in a role originally intended for Matthew Broderick. The role of Alex, plus a certain time travel movie from 1985, made Michael J. Fox one of the biggest stars on TV and in the world. Besides Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton, Family Ties starred Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter-Burney as Stephen and Elise Keaton. Tina Yothers played Jennifer, Justine Bateman was Mallory, and young Andrew was played by Brian Bonzel. There were also other characters like Skippy, 
Lauren, that was Alex's girlfriend, played by Courtney Cox, and Uncle Ned, played by Tom Hanks, who you may remember being at the center of a very intense episode. If you grew up watching Family Ties, you saw several guest stars who would go on to become big-time names, such as Christina Applegate and David Faustino, both of whom would go on to play Kelly and Bud Bundy on Married with Children. There was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who would be Elaine on Seinfeld, and Gina Davis. Also appearing were River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Will Wheaton. And if you know your 80s movie history, you know that's three out of the four actors from Stand By Me. And one last nice tie-in was a guest spot by Crispin Glover, who would play Michael J. Fox's dad, George McFly, in Back to the Future. Speaking of Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox famously shot both Back to the Future and Family Ties at the same time. He would only get a few hours of sleep a night and was running on fumes while starring in both. Fox was so overtired that he reportedly panicked one night on the set of Family Ties before seeing because he couldn't find Doc's camcorder. The characters of Family Ties became so quickly established that it was easy to feel like they were an extension of our own families. And it really was a simple but unique premise for a sitcom. Family Ties reflected what felt like a shift to conservatism in the country and the yuppie era represented through the character of Alex. While at the same time, it was a family show that seemed to harken back to the early days and tone of the first sitcoms. At the center of the show were Democratic parents butting heads with their Republican son. There's even the idea that the P in Alex P. Keaton stands for peace as Alex was born while Stephen and Elise were serving in the Peace Corps. But Family Ties was also about the cultural divide happening between baby boomers and Generation X. Family Ties was beyond a monster hit. At its peak, a third of all households tuned in to watch, and it regularly finished second in the ratings just behind The Cosby Show. In 1986, it hit a rating of 32.7. To put this into context, today, Monday Night Football averages just around 15 million viewers. Family Ties was part of that monster Thursday night lineup for NBC. If you grew up in the 80s, you may remember what a huge night of TV Thursdays were. As on the same night, the lineup was The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court, and Hill Street Blues. To me, that's the greatest lineup of all time. The Family Ties finale, which aired on May 14, 1989, drew in over 36 million viewers, making it one of the most watched series finales ever. I have to say that Family Ties is my favorite 80s sitcom ever. It was another one of those required viewing shows in my house. I felt like I knew the Keatons personally. I was also a huge Michael J. Fox fan, and the fact that he was Canadian and starred in my favorite TV show and movie at the exact same time was amazing. All in all, Family Ties was a powerhouse show and a defining 1980s sitcom. It's tough to narrow down a decade of amazing shows to just 10, and I have to give mention to some other classic 80s sitcoms, including Webster, Different Strokes, Silver Spoons, Mr. Belvedere, Hunky Brewster, Give Me a Break, and Charles in Charge. I also have to mention a few that came out near the end of the 80s, but would go on to dominate television in the 90s, such as Seinfeld, Roseanne, Married with Children, Saved by the Bell, Family Matters, Full House, and Murphy Brown. In the 1980s, the sitcom was back, and it was more powerful than ever. 
The sitcoms of the 80s were true appointment viewing and you dare not miss any episodes as to not be out of the loop the next day. The sitcoms of the 80s brought in ratings that the networks could only ever dream of. It's hard to think of it now, but there was worry going into the 1980s that primetime network TV could turn into a vast wasteland. But the opposite happened. Spurred on by the sitcoms of the 80s, TV changed forever. Things like demographics became more important than ever before, and advertisers clamored to get in front of all the viewers. And this brought in a lot of revenue. According to an August 1981 New York Times article, at the start of the 80s, advertisers spent what was then a record $10.8 billion. Adjusted for inflation, that's around $39 billion. A big advertising number, but as the decade began, TV revenue was actually down more than 2%. This is when the TV landscape seemed uncertain and quote, the American television industry's pre-tax earnings declined in 1980 for the first time in a decade, unquote. Just a few years earlier, TV earnings increased at an 18% rate. But as the 80s began, TV industry profits dropped for the first time since 1970, when cigarette companies were no longer allowed to run commercials. There was the uncertainty of television in the early 80s until these sitcoms helped change the landscape. By 1988, right during the peak of some of these shows, advertisers spent the equivalent of what today would be nearly $64 billion to get their commercials in front of us. As reported in the New York Times in March 1990, by 1989, broadcast television advertising revenue hit a staggering $21.35 billion, or nearly $52 billion when converted for today. But at the time, numbers like that didn't mean anything to us. We just loved the shows we loved. 1980s sitcoms were unique in their combination of bizarre premises, clever writing, and memorable characters. They helped to define the pop culture of the decade, and they continue to be beloved by audiences today. Is the classic three-camera sitcom with a laugh track a thing of the past? Maybe, but the 80s remain a true golden age of television sitcoms. It's an era of beloved favorites that also changed the course of the entire industry. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more 1980s content, there's plenty more where that came from in my earlier episodes. And if you're looking for bonus audio content like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. I've just released a new review over there, The Empire Strikes Back. If you want to learn more, just head to patreon.com slash 80s, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash 80s, or click on the link in the description. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure to wherever you get your podcast for more 1980s content. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>